we just made a $19 million profit from an idea. Clearly, that's not what you want to do, but clearly that's what Enron did and, yeah. and got in all sorts of trouble <laughs> because the overriding goal was make your numbers. You are now connected with Enclave for Entrepreneurs at O'Hare International Airport in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Enclave O'Hare, the local to global learning and earning center for entrepreneurs and their influencers. From unexpected election results to reversals in equity markets, from inexplicable declines in stock value to surprise increases in sales revenue, and from job growth numbers to value and increasing rates of unemployment, metrics for measurement involve mathematics, mystery, and maybe even a bit of magic. On the third Wednesday of January 2019, Rocky Clancy, former executive at J.D. Power, helped us sort out what metrics mean to entrepreneurs and their influencers. Rocky Clancy, okay. and I am currently um, on the advisory board at the Enclave. Love working with the people here. Prior to this, I was working at J.D. Power for about 10 years, where I started the financial services practice and okay. grew it in the second largest at J.D. Power. And prior to that, I was a consultant and a banker and uh, have been at it for a while. Awesome. Very cool. And tonight, with our January conversation in 2019, it was titled Metrics with Meaning Beyond Measurement. So I wanted just to go over a couple of things that I highlighted tonight that I thought um, were pretty meaningful. Well, actually, before we even dive into that, give us a little bit of context in regards to talking about context tonight. We use that a lot, and we'll dive yeah. into that during our talk here. But what do you mean when we talk about, obviously, meaning beyond measurement? So the measurement itself is without the appropriate context mm -hmm. and without the appropriate um, synthesis of, of data and analytics that bring insight to it is sort of just a flat, meaningless number. It has no meaning. Correct. So it requires those two pieces. It's the insight that's been you know, drawn out of the analysis and that it has to be in the appropriate context. Right. Right. One of the things that, that we talked about was, and, and it stuck out to me, was, um, and I have it written down here, goals can be a very strong prescription, uh, but when used used incorrectly, it can be very, very risky. Yes. Can, can you expand on that a little so, bit? So, I mean, you know, there's the old adage, you manage what you measure, and, and implicit in that is that um, people are going to respond to goals. I mean, because... People like direction. People like, you know, things in black and white. And a goal translates some of the ambiguity in the world and something that's hard and fast and that they can run to. So if the thing that's hard and fast that they're running to is running in the wrong direction or um, isn't properly aligned with other things you want them to do, you can run into trouble. And sure. I mean, there are countless instances of that from... More recently, Wells Fargo to Enron to the Pinto case, all of those are examples of people essentially doing what they were told to do through goals and incentives. Mm -hmm. and, and for the Wells Fargo example, um, products per customer. Can you dive into that a little bit more? Yeah, so the, the interesting thing is that was a... Um, I mean, the banking industry has undergone a great deal of consolidation, mm -hmm. and and the adage that was used came from it came from Rick Kabasevich, who was the um, 
the CEO at Norwest Bank. Norwest bought Wells Fargo and they adopted the Wells Fargo name. They adopted the Wells Fargo headquarters. And in many respects, the Wells Fargo culture and legacy proved to be stronger than Norwest. In the Norwest construct, it was really a, a collection of community banks run centrally. And so there's a big focus on doing the right thing for the customer and uh, contributing to your communities. Um, under the Wells Fargo culture, there was an absolutely huge focus on we are going to hit the numbers. Um, there was a case where um, a, a guy named Richard Bove, who is a uh, banking analyst, wrote an analyst note that essentially said their customer experience doesn't matter all in banking. And his um, premise was that he was a Wells Fargo customer and there was a uh, few institutions that he dealt with that treated him as poorly as Wells Fargo did, but he thought that Wells Fargo, as an analyst in the industry, was one of the best-run banks in the country. Wow. So therefore, doesn't really matter. And I think what that says is Wells Fargo, their culture was like, we are going to hit the numbers, we are going to deliver for our shareholders, but that um, put less of an emphasis on doing the right thing for the customer and the communities. And so that eight products are great, that emphasis on putting more products in the customer's hand, in the context of a community-oriented, customer-driven institution was totally appropriate. It helped guide employees saying, the greatest service we can provide to our customers is giving them the products they need. Put in the Wells Fargo context, it was in order to make our numbers, we must sell more products to our customers whether they want it or not, whether I have to take shortcuts or not, or whether I have to open uh, 25 savings accounts for my sister, brother, and their kids to make my numbers, which okay. is what ended up happening. And it's amazing that it's just that little change in context. Absolutely. In, Absolutely. in the scenario that they were each in. Dive into a little bit more about uh, metrics and allowing that to drive behavior, whether that be good or bad. Well, so the so metrics, it has been shown, uh, or research has shown over, you know, probably the last three, four decades that are going to be um, extremely powerful in driving behavior when they are specific, i.e. they're black and white, they're written down, um, when they're publicly articulated. So they're out in the public ether, people know what you're accountable for, and they know what your um, your results are. So short version is peer pressure comes to play. And one of the most powerful motivators is knowing your progress against goals. So that's why goals work. Mm -hmm. So the question then is, if it's a good goal, mm -hmm. in other words, it's in the appropriate context, it is well aligned with the company's values and its mission, then hey, you're, you know, have a powerful tool to drive good behavior. If it's not in the right context, let's use some Enron examples, like we have numbers that we are gonna hit, and if that means creating companies that are basically an idea that we've invested a million dollars in, and we project that it will be worth $100 million in five years, and we discount the cash flow back to today to get a mark to market, we just made a $19 million profit from an idea. 
clearly that's not what you want to do, but clearly that's what Enron did and, yeah. and got in all sorts of trouble <laughs> because the overriding goal was make your numbers. Mm -hmm. So the goal Opposed was extremely powerful, mm -hmm. but it, it was not motivating the right behavior. And not starting with the end in mind. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. If you're if you're a, an entrepreneur, right? That's the whole focus here at Enclave is is you know focus on that individual, and you're thinking about these things to whether you know be an investor that wants to invest within your business, and um, they're going to come to you and start asking questions around metrics and those kind of things. Uh, John brought up a little bit earlier uh, tonight was how do you how does somebody deal with that and understanding what metrics early on where you're not going to necessarily have that answer, right? So maybe you just don't have the data points to say we are hitting these metrics or we just don't have these quite yet. What would be your advice to somebody who's really just starting out and kind of, you know, um, getting to a point where those metrics will have some data behind it, um, but they just don't really have the context right now um, because they are just starting off with this idea that hopefully will eventually turn into a company that will employ people and all those kind of things. Right. And I think there, I think there are two things going on there. One is the behavior of the investor or the perspective of the investor. And, sure. and it can kind of come of it from two ways. One is like, hey, I have power and I want to show the power of who's in charge and who knows more, et cetera. Mm -hmm. That's how I make myself feel good. Mm -hmm. That's probably a less generous way of putting it than the other uh, way John put it, which was, I want to feel that I'm adding value here, so I have to say something. Uh -huh. So I have to find something to criticize, or I have to say, so if I say, hey, everything's going great, then I haven't done my job. <laughs> Why are right? you here? Yeah. <laughs> right. So I'm just, you know, if I say, hey, keep keep it up, let me know if you have any problems, I haven't done what I'm supposed to do. Right. And I think there's a lot of that. Let's, you know, kind of take a positive view, and, yeah. and I think there is that, um, mm -hmm. that if I don't say something or don't find something to criticize, I'm not doing my job. Understanding that as, a, as an entrepreneur, I think, is important. The thing that I would say to the entrepreneur is your ability, now can say I haven't gotten to that yet and I, or I hadn't thought of that, is the metrics or the data around your markets and around your customers and around your competitors, uh, I, I think that's a case where a lot of uh, entrepreneurs honestly haven't done their homework. And that's one of the things that you you, you got to do. I mean, if you're going to be successful, there's a variety of reasons for entrepreneurs failing, but not knowing the market and not knowing the competitors, being blindsided by you know customers not reacting the way that you that you thought that they would, or kind of being taken off guard by competitors reacting in a certain way. Some of those are, you know, happening to the best of us. Some are unforced errors. People just haven't done their homework. And I think, as I mentioned um, before, a lot of times you will see that the, the extent of market research being done by entrepreneurs is to sort of fill in the blanks for the prospectus they're putting together or their pitch deck. Mm -hmm. um, they're basically just using that data to validate what they believe as opposed to really using it to say, is there a market here? I'm, I'm one of those people that say, hey, once I have an idea, I think it's great, and I'm going to selectively use the information that um, supports my idea mm -hmm. and screen out everything that doesn't. Mm -hmm. And we are all prone to that as a human being. As entrepreneurs, you cannot, you have to have that, you know, you have to take those blinders off. You have to be acutely aware that that's a tendency, and you have to be able to know those numbers. So you should know those numbers and you should know those facts better than the entrepreneur. 
as it relates to the financial. It's the same sort of thing. You need to know where those are. But I do believe that if you know what the opportunity is, you've been able to, to um, go through a rigorous process of setting your priorities and you're executing well against those, you can demonstrate it. There's an internal level of comfort and security that you're going to get that put you in good stead when you're having those conversations. Because part of your job as an entrepreneur is to be able to explain the business to the investor. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've always worked in banking. And um, I've found that a big part of a, uh, a lender is a better lender when he's an educated lender. And that education is largely... Um, Dependent up, upon those up, numbers, up yeah. To, up to the customer to do the education, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Have that conversation and that back and forth to understand what does exactly look like. Yeah, I mean, it's looking, it's it's anticipating the questions. It's it's going in there, leaning forward and leaning into it and saying, um, you know, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. I know my numbers. Mm -hmm. And yes, it is going to be something, hopefully, that you're wildly passionate about, you know, the, your your idea, whether it be something that's going to drastically change something, and this is your first opportunity to go to market and, you know, fulfill that need. And I think a lot of, you know, Enclave, we talk about, you know, making sure you understand yourself and the emotions and those things that go into it, but it is also understanding that this is also business that results in whether it be a non-for-profit, so you have your metrics there, or a for-profit, so you need to hit your metrics there and get back with your investors. You know, having that ability to look at it pragmatically from the business sense, but also understanding how those conversations are making you feel and being prepared to have those with your investors, with the folks that are make, helping you make those business decisions. Yeah, I mean, we touched on some of Jim Collins' books, like Good to Great, Built to Last, and a point that he makes is that ability, the the sort of the fallacy of either or. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm either going to be pragmatic or I'm going to be a visionary. Mm -hmm. I'm going to know the numbers or I'm going to fulfill my dreams. I mean, a big uh, emphasis of Collins is on, uh, you know, not only knowing but rooting out the brutal facts of reality. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, be able to um, have that aspiration and the ability to keep going. What When should somebody, and this is probably going to be a difficult question to answer, but I'm just going to throw it out there anyway. When does the entrepreneur go past it and say, you know what, I understand that the advice is here, uh, you know, the professional advice is there based off of these metrics, based off historical data and those kind of things, but... I know that this is going to work, right? Because isn't that kind of one of the more difficult parts is marrying, like you're saying, that you have to say, let's be pragmatic and, and, and intelligent about how we're going to go about this and will it be successful versus, you know what, I am going to go against the grain in this scenario because I'm just convinced that it's going to work. Yeah, I mean, one of the big pushbacks on any of the things that we've been saying is, I mean, as famously as, as Steve Jobs saying, we never do any market research. Yeah. You know, the consumers don't know what they want. Yeah. All right. The thing that, the, the little bit of pushback I would give on that is that idea of, um, well, let me drag in another famous person. Jeff Bezos is, mm -hmm. you know, the, there's that famous line from him that says, you know, people often ask me, what's going to change? What's the world going to be like in five to 10 years? And he goes, I think that's a very interesting question. 
But I'm much more interested in the question, what's not going to change in the next five to 10 years? What are those universal truths? Because no one's going to come to me and say, hey, Jeff, you know what I'd like? If you could just slow down your deliveries, that would be great. Or if you, <laughs> if you could increase your prices, or if you could make a few more errors, they're never going to say that. Right. And those are some universals. So if your idea is going to address those universal needs, I, you know, so I think there's sort of that, you know, that sort of operating on gut instinct, mm -hmm. the way Jobs would sort of say he did. Mm -hmm. But then again, on the other hand, he is, you know, a lot of the products that were produced are hitting at universal needs, whether he did market research or not. You know, I think that's a, you know, but I get your point. It's like, when do you, when do you say, you know what, I just believe in this. I think it's one of those things. And I, I, I didn't really make this point before, but codify and and get hard data where you know. So what do I know? And then be very clear on saying, this is what I don't know. So that I can understand what is the level of risk? What are, you know, what are the assumptions that I'm making here? And am I willing to live with those assumptions? Because doing that and saying, you know, my gut tells me and the, you know, sort of the anecdotal evidence I've gotten tells me this is going to be a winner, even with these uncertainties, that's different than sort of ignoring a body of evidence or not bothering to get the data mm -hmm. and then taking a flyer. Two, yeah. two totally different things. Can you touch a little bit on you? You did um, some extensive research with financial advisors in relation to the client and the actual relationship and kind of studying some of those kind of things. Can you expand on that a little bit? Um, yeah, that's we the work that we did with Dave and, and uh, my colleague, Gina uh, Pingatori. Um, and essentially, the, the research was based on a body of research that's been done on the relationship between a patient and a doctor getting therapy. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the basic idea is even if the, the um, advice that the doctor is giving is spot on 100% right, if there is not the trust and the relationship and the rapport that's been established, it's a waste of time. Because if the if there's not that trust, the patient's not going to act on the advice. They don't receive it and internalize it and then take action upon it. Exactly. So we took that same premise and applied it to financial advisors and their clients. And what we found was that same sort of dynamic existed where you could have an advisor that knew was giving the right answers, but the rapport wasn't developed to the point that the client could trust those answers and then act on them. So it was interesting. We, did, we, we, we took satisfaction data and we found customers that were highly satisfied with their financial advisors. And then we looked at their, the business that they were giving to them the number of referrals they made, you know, sort of the outputs you would expect from that high satisfaction. Mm -hmm. We then took that high satisfaction bucket and split it between people that had excellent relationship so that the trust and the rapport was, was very strong. And then the other half of that group, it wasn't as high. And what we found is when it was super, you know, strong and that relationship was really good, the outputs were much higher. It's amazing. That was, it was pretty cool because 
when you're super satisfied, you get high outputs anyway. So it's mm -hmm. like, yeah, this is good. So I'm doing all the right things. I'm keeping you up to date. I'm calling you. I'm, you know, setting up appointments. We're going over, you know, your annual plan. I'm, I'm regularly getting your input on the level of risk you're taking. I'm doing all the right stuff. And when I do all the right stuff, I get good, good outcomes. But if I'm doing that and we've developed a strong relationship, you know, I juice the outcomes even more. And it's the, the folks that are more technical in nature. I found that they're main focus is always to be how much of an absolute expert can I become in this capacity? But when you do that and you focus so much on those details, what I've learned at Enclave is you do miss that opportunity to, to understand how to build rapport and those kind of things. Right. And one of the things you would look at is say, um, as an example, one of the things we found in the wealth management world, it is not the returns that I get. It is the returns relative to what I expected to get. And then it's being able to tease, it's, it's being able to resolve in the same way you might res resolve an argument with somebody, resolve the gaps between my expectation and the, the actual results with the person on the other side. Yeah. For him to be explained, this is why you got what you got. And here's whether it's better or worse, you know, that's where the trust really came in. Perception and, and context. Yeah. Once again. Yeah. Yeah. So to wrap up, um, because we're we're enclave and we're all about the individual entrepreneur, one of the things that you brought up at the very end, which I thought was awesome, was how do we and, and why don't we look at the well-being, the metrics of the well-being of the entrepreneur, the business owner? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think that's very early, you know, I mean, sort of uncharted territory. I mean, as you know, when you when and the purpose you know, sort of the raison d'etre of the enclave is to focus on the founder and their well-being and their ability to um, make uh, healthy decisions for themselves and for their company in a way that no other similar, you know, incubator type groups are doing. And I think, so this is very sort of early. So given the fact that that's the focus, understanding and measuring um, what good looks like appears to be an important body of work. So at the very early stages, so the thing that we would be looking for, well, as I said, is what does good look like? What does healthy look like? What does wellness look like for an entrepreneur? Is it a level of confidence? Is it a feeling of, um, you know, physical? Um, I, you know, I'm well rested, I'm well fed, I'm exercising. How does that present itself? And so we're in the very early stage of getting immediate feedback from some of the entrepreneurs that we have, and we'll use that as sort of the jumping off point to figure out the uh, um, testing framework and look yeah. forward to seeing what that shows. I'm very confident that will lead to creating stronger stronger entrepreneurs, stronger businesses, and ultimately more more jobs and a stronger economy, right? No, I think so. I mean, uh, uh, you know, some what we do know is that whether – it's a CEO of a well-established company or an entrepreneur just starting up the company. When they have personal issues, you know, that gets in the way of the job. They, they're not functioning at the level that they could. Mm -hmm. The doctors Morrison have spent a career on helping people that are in those situations. So I, I do think that an important part of this is, you know, it's understanding – 
the the realities of the the market that you're working in and and being able to sort of set the the uh, the guardrails and the signposts to keep you on track and accelerate your progress are all the things we're talking about with metrics. But the driver of that car has to be healthy. And so I think the thing that we're looking at is what are some of the different ways to get there? What are some of the ways or some of the things that impair that health? And if we were to come up with a dashboard for this is what healthy looks like, how do we know when someone's on track or off track and what do we do to get them back on track? I think that's going to be important work. Absolutely. Anything else you'd say to the any and our listeners out there? No, I think I just I feel privileged to be part of the this community and um, thinks this is very important work. I couldn't agree more. We're so happy to have you on board. For our listeners, remember to start with the end in mind when thinking about metrics. They are most useful when viewed through the right lens to drive behavior and create favorable outcomes. For the curious mind. You can find more information on our website at enclaveforentrepreneurs.com. This is Scott Brown. Thanks for listening.